0: My name is Phil Williams, and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Canal fishing is generally acknowledged as being perhaps one of the toughest, least rewarding, and least glamorous of all the various strands of course fishing, and in particular, course match fishing. Clearly, there are some good fish to be caught in some canals. But typically, canal match target weights can come in at less than a single fish taken from many small commercial fisheries, which understandably, makes getting consistently good results something of an art form in itself. Today, I'm in the company of Bolton match angler John Inman, who after a very successful spell on the National Club match circuit with Doncaster and District, then later Wigan and District, found himself fishing canals on a regular basis, and probably as much by default as by design. So how did all of that come about?
1: Well, I started fishing when I was about 13, and um, I was lucky enough to go to meetings at Doncaster and District where they provided for young anglers, and this inspired me enormously. And then the following year, I joined a junior angling team, and it was the National on the River Witham at Five Mile House. Unfortunately, the team won. We did have practice, and all the practice paid off, and the team won. And I was, I remember, 46. But there was quite um, many hundred, maybe three, four hundred anglers taking part. Following year, again, the same venue, Doncaster and District, the National again. I was in the team and I was seventh. So I think I got slightly better as I went on. And then I went into senior angling. And at, at the age of 19, I qualified for the Doncaster senior team on the River Trent. And by then I was quite a competent river angler. But unfortunately, the River Trent was going through a a bad stage at that time. There was a roach disease called columnaris, and it hit all the roach. So the the mainstay of fishing on the river was always roach. So so there was next to nothing to catch. A few days, a few good gin, a few bream. There were hardly any chub, and so it was really hard. And I remember I I won a gold medal. I actually had the, the top weight in the Doncaster team, one pound, 10 ounce, <laughs> that's all I had. And A team of 12 to have one pound, 10 ounce, having the top weight was really disappointed. And I can't even remember where the team came in, in those days, but there were only one national then. There were a number of national, like three or four divisions as there are now. And I remember it was one at uh, Long Eaton, just above Nottingham with something like seven pound of Gudgeon, won the national, and this was the 19... 19- 69 national with seven pounds of goody, which was really disappointing. Anyway, I moved on from that. I moved across the Pennines in my early um, 20s and started fishing the ribble, which was goodness me, it was tremendous. It was never exploited by anglers this side of the Pennines, because most of them were canal anglers, and it was goodness me, it was the dace and chub fishing was astounding at those times. I then started fishing in teams over this side and doing really well, qualifying for Wigan in district, in pole position, in the qualifiers, every time I fished on rivers, usually out of the qualifiers of six, I'd win four, and have lesser placings, so then I captained Wigan in district, in my late 20s, early 30s, almost always on rivers, one on the River Trent, and also I remember it was on the Neen, where I I captained Wigan in district, but then, Things changed. Rivers went down the pan, I think. I don't really know why, but the fishing would deteriorated enormously. Some blame cormorants. I really don't know what the cause was. So I moved to canals, which was a, a new venture for me. And this coincided with the onvent of pole fishing. So everyone was trying to get an handle on pole fishing, myself included. And then I've always liked to use a bit of finesse. And so it suited me because of squats. In team fishing, squats were the the number one bait as a team. They never won a match, but they were the the bait that was required to actually do well. And um, I always prided myself on out finessing other anglers by fishing finer lines, smaller hooks. And it really did pay off, because these tiny little fish didn't want coarse gear. They didn't want big crude hooks or thick lines. So if I could put, say, four and a half, five pounds of squat fish together mainly loose fed squats with a catapult. But in those days, pole fishing was more or less restricted to 9 metres or thereabouts. You were really stretching it if you were going to 11, simply because the poles weren't as good as they are today. They were heavy, cumbersome things, and so 9 metres was a comfortable length, and these little squat fish usually accommodated and came to 9 metres. You couldn't fish much closer usually. They wouldn't tolerate But fishing closer, but 9 metres to 11 with an ideal distance. I really enjoyed those times, and I did really well in matches, team matches, nationals, on waters, even going across the other side of the, the Pennines and fishing, the Stainforth and Keedbyon, and again, it, it was squat a lot of the time, so it really suited me, because I, I became very much a, a specialist squat angler, that for team fishing was an enormous advantage. And then things changed again, Carp fishing came along to a large extent, having fished for several teams on canals, uh, fished again for Wigginham District, Newley Willows, lots of local teams, pub teams trying to work their way up through the ranks. Then it went to carp fishing, and uh, again, it was a, a, a totally new ball game. Things changed, longer poles now, slightly thicker lines, not much thicker than the squat fishing, to be quite honest. And I moved on, and I really enjoyed um, that. It's still a learning curve for me in, in terms of carp fishing on these commercial waters. So things have gone to a large extent in a full circle from river to canals, now back to still waters. But not squats now. For me, it's mainly and um, pellets, and sweet corn, and luncheon meat, and baits such as that. I run the matches at the Croft Fisheries in in Adlington in the winter months for the last six or seven years and it can be really hard but the weights compared to i'm saying hard compared to canal fishing it's wonderful because sometimes the target weight and some of the canal matches squat fishing was less than two pound you targeted a pound and a half and you knew you were going to do well with a pound and a half on the bridgewater canal at timperley particularly everyone in our team had a target of one pound 11 ounces in mind they broke one pound 11 ounces they knew they were going to get good points whereas one and a quarter pounds may not be enough and it was just eking out tiny tiny little fish and accumulating maybe 40 or 50 fish at half an ounce to three quarters of an ounce and sometimes if it was really difficult can't believe it but we'd net fish like a gudgeon we'd actually net them when you're only catching four gudgeon an hour and they became precious you weren't going to risk losing a gudgeon, so you'd have a what we used to call a little cocky net which was only about 6 or 8 inches in diameter, about 150 millimetres in diameter. you just nurse the fish back to the net, even though it only was tiny. It was so precious to you on these tiny little hooks. you don't risk swinging even a gudgeon in. But Things have changed, now it's carp fishing. It's still refined though, especially these F1 carp, they're more delicate than roach and they've get very educated, so it needs an enormous amount of finesse, fine wire hooks, even for carp fishing, and um, the right elastic balance to the right thickness of, of line. So it's still fishing with relatively thin elastics, wanting to see 5 and 6 feet of elastic, 2 metres of elastic coming out to cushion that very tiny hook to make sure you don't lose it in matches. So you still need finesse. I think a lot of anglers think that because it's carp fishing and they fish with the mentality, oh but maybe I'm going to get a good, a big fish and if I get a big fish I need to get it out so therefore I need to fish with a, a stout hook and thick line I find it's the opposite, you will get the fish out it just takes a little bit longer but uh, it sacrifices the bread and butter fish the normal fish that you're expecting to catch, it reduces the chance of catching those by fishing anything like crude line. So my main starting point at most commercials in open water is um, the main line and up length of 0.12. That's my mainstay, 0.12 millimetres in diameter. Whereas most anglers start with 0.14 and 0.16. And I honestly believe that by fishing crude, well, what is relatively crude to me, gear and the bigger hooks that you do jeopardise your bite ratio, your, your bites are reduced, and also you get less positive bites, and the snatch at the bait, they, they want the bait, but they know there's something wrong, so they snatch it, chances are you're going to bump the fish, lose the fish, whereas if you fish a, a far more refined line and far more refined hook, they take the bait with confidence, and you up them, confidence is down the throat rather than snatching in the lips. And usually get it out, Provided you you fish the right pattern of hook, then it's very rare that you actually lose them. Anglers always say to me, I've been missing a lot of bites, so I've increased my hook size because of missing bites. And I said, well, I do the opposite. If you're missing bites, the fish are telling you you're doing something wrong. The fish are wanting the bait, it's you that's doing something wrong in terms of your presentation, your, your hook, your line, Well, your basic presentation is wrong because if it was right, the fish would be actually hooking themselves rather than missing bites. So I actually reduce the hook size or say to myself, what am I doing wrong? What can I do different to make things right? Sometimes it might be as simple as a back shot because of the wind affecting the float and just drifting it about and creating a badly presented bait. Or it could be other factors... But the main one is, is finesse, in calm conditions, shortening your distance from pole tip to float to a very minimum distance, and it, that increases your the strike rate. You don't have to pick a big loop of line-up, so it's a quicker strike, and also you're holding it more firmly. You're not allowing it to drift around because of a very short line that very often is, is the key. In windy conditions, you can't do that. You have to fish a longer line, but sometimes fish a, a really big back shot get all your line above the float below the surface and really pimple your float down so that there's no effect or minimum effect of wind on float and on line, then that very often brings bites and positive bites. So I always think that if you're missing bites, it tells you that there's loads of fish in your swim, but um, they know that something's wrong. So, that, so that then the, you've got to take steps to counter
0: that problem. Can we now take a step back to the squats themselves, which are not something you see very often these days on the match scene. So for those that don't know, explain a little more about what squats are and their importance on canals in getting a good result.
1: Squats are the larvae of Musca domestica, which is the little house They're quite tiny little baits, so you, you have to balance this with a tiny little oak, but I used to be able to get my bait directly from the farm and I, th- I think in the production of squats, there was it was always on pig farms. So they used to use I don't know pig manure, pig urine. I don't know. They were always associated so that it needed a pig farm to actually breed squats. There was one local to Lee, and I used to go there every Friday and pick my squats up straight off the bed. And it was really important that they were fresh. So I'd bring them home, and they actually fed them on bread. I used to put milk on a slice of white bread, as soon as I got them home, put this slice of bread over the top of the squats in my bait box, hoping that they were so fresh that they'd actually eat it. And this used to plump them up, get really soft skin, this slice of damp bread on top used to make them really soft, and it used to sometimes double in size by eating the bread. And even if they didn't eat it, a slice of wetted, milked, bread on top of them, never did any harm because it kept them really soft for the hook and they were really happy in the shade underneath working the way. Very often they'd eat the way through it and in the morning you'd only have a crust and then you'd give them some more. It came in red sand but you'd carry them fishing. Most of the fishing then was based upon loose feed but as I said earlier that um, most of the squat fishing was based around 9 metres. Unless it was really windy you usually could get your bait by catapult, three or four at a time, only very few very very tiny little floats and fishing sometimes incorporated ground bait, but if it was, I used to use a little cup and midi the 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 tattle company midi, they made what they called a a a ground bait punch, and I discovered and it was my own little invention that if you could incorporate this this little ground bait punch and uh, by using a little plastic cup. Punch out a punch, a solid lump of of ground. bait. they came out uniform in shape, a little cylinder about um, fifteen millimeters in diameter by about fifteen millimeters in depth. So a little plug. But of course, putting a, this cylinder into another cylinder, a little to cup it out, it used to drop out. So I discovered that turning it sideways and pressing it in sideways. So of course the cylinder is sideways on to the plastic cup on the end of my pole. You could just wedge it in, and you got really adept at to doing this with speed. Sometimes you'd put three or four squats at the bottom of the cup, and this little plug of ground bait, and um, and you'd one little tap on the pole, and this little plug would go directly to the bottom. Really accurate fishing, fishing exactly where your ground bait is and your squats are, and it worked wonders. And sometimes we fished matches, winter leagues, on the Leeds-Liverpool canal between Wigan and Liverpool. And for some reason, the fish there, they didn't want any loose feed at all. But not all anglers knew this. Our team knew this. So we used to go along with just the ground bait punch, and this little cup, and little solid lumps of ground bait, cupping them in. And... We used to pick a catapult up, empty catapult, and flick out imaginary squats, and everyone had watched because we we're catching really well. We did really well by just feeding ground bait. The fishing was so hard; it was really tough fishing. It wouldn't tolerate loose feed for some reason. You put loose feed in, it and you didn't get a bite. But if you put a little touch of ground bait via this little pole pot, then you you get bite. But you, you tried to induce all the anglers around you, all the other teams around you, into thinking you are lose feeding. So we all took a catapult and every 30 seconds pulled the catapult back and everyone's looking, seeing we're catching, and they followed suit. Of course, it killed their swim. They were feeding squats. And so that worked, but only for a couple of seasons. Everyone cottoned on. After a couple of seasons, they, they realised what we were doing. It got around, and, of course, we only held our lead for a short while. But uh, I don't know why it was really strange, but who can imagine what fish want? If I knew that, I'd be a, a master, because you never know when you go fishing what you're going to catch and what the bait is, even though you may know the venue, um, really familiar with it, and you, you go constantly. Every day is different, and um, the weather's different, the fish behave differently, and what they certainly did on the Leeds-Liverpool canal then, they would not tolerate um, any loose feed, bit of ground bait they responded to but of course when your bait goes amongst a little cloud of ground bait and it's the only bait that there is they have no choice but to take it but it didn't seem to work on other venues it didn't work on the Trent and Mersey canal in the same way or the the Bridgewater canal or any of the Shropshire canals it only seemed to work there but uh, it certainly did work without any doubt and it was only by accident that I learnt to do it and uh, told all the team and they all bought these little midi bait punchers and a little plastic cup as I say by turning the, the plug sideways you could make it stay in the cup it's the only way to make it stay in just one little tap and it came out and, uh, and you dropped your bait on it and it worked wonders
0: what was the situation with bloodworm then why didn't you use that
1: Well, it was all the local associations, particularly, as I say, I fished for Wigan and District in both the teams in Nationals and captained the teams. For some strange reason, ever since I landed in Lancashire, it's always been banned. In all of Wigan and District's matches, it's always been banned. And Liverpool matches, they also didn't allow it. You get to Preston, Preston have always allowed it. Some of the Blackburn clubs have allowed it, but usually Rochdale, all the Manchester clubs, for some reason, they banned the bait, so we had to rely on squats to catch fish. If we'd have been able to use bloodworm, we would have caught a lot more. Squats are nowhere near as good a bait, and certainly in the harder conditions, in the middle of winter, bloodworm would have been. But um, that's the only reason. So I really wasn't a bloodworm angler. If I'd have been brought up in Preston, no doubt I would have been, because they did allow um,
0: bloodworm fishing in that region. From memory, the league system was very big back in the 1970s and 80s. So big, in fact, that like the Football League, extra divisional layers with promotion and relegation needed to be added to it to cope.
1: Well, the Winter League, there were region after region of Angling Town Winter Leagues, um unfortunately now team fishing has gone through a phase and it's now from an eye strength as you say in the 70s and 80s it's now reduced to and in fact the angling times winter league as far as I'm aware it doesn't exist and in fact I, I ran the um, along with my colleague Roger Robinson we ran the the Chesham winter league for a number of years mainly on the river Weaver started in October November and December, six matches, and um was very, very successful, 12 teams of 12 anglers. And then it got to, to the late 1990s, early 2000s, and um, teams were reduced from 12 teams of 12, it became 10 teams of 12, and then 9 teams of 12, and it got to a point where the angling times anything less than nine teams of 12 anglers, they wouldn't allow it as, as a, a viable regional match series. So I think in something like 2001, the Mid-Cheshire League simply disbanded because of lack of numbers and lack of interest. But strangely, in the middle of the 80s, the Mid-Cheshire League, of which I was part, I, was, I wasn't in any organisation capacity, just an angler, it would become so popular that a number of anglers within the league wanted to form their own league. Another side-by-side winter league, there were that many anglers willing to fish them, they called theirs the Mid-Cheshire League. So there was the Cheshire League and the Mid-Cheshire League, and I was always in the, the Cheshire League Winter League. And that ran on parallel. We had 12 teams of 12 anglers times 2 in the in the Cheshire Leagues. That's how popular it was. And then, of course, 10, 15 years on, everything just disbanded to such an extent. Unfortunately, the winter leagues don't run at all, nor do the summer leagues. There's barely any leagues at all running now. And all that has been brought about, I think, by carp fishing. They'd realised how good carp fishing can be, and rather not, like I've described, all the scratching matches on fishing squat for uh, a pound or two of of weight, and you can go... fishing and uh, catch 30, 40 pound cart fishing and come up nowhere. But at least you've had a good day's fishing. At least you can go home satisfied. So it's rare in cart fishing that um, you don't catch anything, whereas it was quite common on canals to blank and not catch a thing. And so I think that's the reason why. In fact, now that the leagues, what leagues there are and what um, team competitions there are mainly come out of born out of tattle shops and, um, Pairs leagues, it's as little as pairs rather than teams of 12. So two anglers will get together, and there's there's several local pairs leagues running, but mainly based not on angling associations or big competitions like the NFA, just out of simple tackle shops that simply want to promote angling in the harder winter months when their income has been reduced. By promoting pairs matches, they can keep anglers coming through the door and anglers are satisfied at fishing team competitions through the winter months but invariably those competitions are on commercial carp fisheries and there are as I say there are several of these such leagues running locally it's how the the clock has turned and time has moved on and it's come full circle in many ways to a different style of competition angling and I've no doubt it'll change in in the future
0: so how does all of this apparent apathy feed into having a suitable squad of talent from which to select the national squad to compete at international level
1: Well there are competitions still running such as what they call the Camasan League which is like an individual league over several matches and the elite of anglers go in and that really does sort the the men from the boys so you accrue points on I think them it has to for the Camasan League it has to be all matches count if you go in a match, but it has to be, I think, um, I'm not really sure, but I think it's over 40 anglers. If 40 anglers compete in any match, if you win that match, then you can um, enter that, the angling times, as a result. And so by entering as many competitions over 40 anglers and doing well in them, you can accrue points over a full season. And so you can actually get yourself known. And there are several leagues such as this, and the invitation matches, so the good anglers get themselves known by usually the Khamasan League and it's published weekly in the Angling Times so everyone knows who's doing what, where. It is difficult, but now it's expanded. as ladies' nationals, seniors' nationals, junior nationals, but uh, the, the number of leagues went up to six, the divisions in the Angling Times' nationals, but now I think it's shrunk to far fewer. I'm not really... Sure, but it might be as little as two or three. But, of course, in the 70s, there was only one national, but then it went to two divisions and then three divisions, and now it shrunk back again to a smaller number of of nationals.
0: I know from chatting to you earlier that you regard success in all aspects of match fishing, and canal match fishing in particular, as having a direct correlation to the amount of effort put in at many different levels.
1: Yeah, particularly when it came down to squat fishing. The bait was so tiny that it had to be balanced with minuscule hooks and most people used um, one which was a kamasan B511, a little silver hook that was common with bread fishing and they used to use commonly a size 26 hook. Fine wire, small hook, but it was nowhere near refined enough for me. It was twice the size that I demanded for my squat fishing. And so I used a little tiny mustard hook, and, um, I used to find that if a lot of the, the shapes of the hooks didn't exactly suit my purpose, I liked the hook. So I used to re-bend them with a pair of fine nose pliers. So this particular mustard hook wasn't all that thin in the wire, but it was tiny inch shape. But the gate between point and shank, was a little bit narrow so he used to widen that painstakingly with two pairs of pliers widen the gape and they actually withstood the force of of rebending the hook some hooks wouldn't rebend at all they simply broke or snapped in the process of bending them some would so you had to find out which hooks would rebend and some wouldn't also the barbs were very often too big so again you used to just press them down with a pair of very fine, it had to be an extremely fine pair of long nose pliers in order to be able to get them the right shape. So you actually manipulated the size of it. So from a, a bear hook, you totally changed the the shape of it. And I used to like quite short shank hooks and a very, very size. These were size 28. So from the common size that most anglers use, this B511, I used a mustard up, which was a definitely size 28 which is much, much smaller. And I used to, when and I still do, when I buy line from a tattle shop, I instantly get the micrometer out and mic it up. And it's amazing how inaccurate the lines are from what it says on the spool to what they actually are. So I used to mic them up and sometimes they were massively out, twice as thick again as what they stated on the spool. So anglers were being misled into the thickness but because i was prepared to make it i used to be very selective choosing between brands and making sure and i used to fish 0.05 bottoms which is extremely thin no angler went as thin as that 0.05 and by combining that to these tiny tiny hooks i found that uh, i could present a bait on these Squats are (laughs) minuscule as they are, so the squat behaved naturally as it fell with this very, very thin line and these very tiny hooks. I found that um, some anglers took the attitude that if I get a good fish, I need to get it out. And I used to argue the case, no, you don't. If you're squat fishing, you're squat fishing. It has to be done to the extreme level. And if you lose a fish, well, so be it. But amazingly, you lose very, very little And I used to use either size one elastic or size two. And again, anglers were fishing with size three and size four. And by fishing a a very fine elastic, even with a gudgeon, I was getting five feet, two meters of elastic out, but it had a really good cushioning effect. Although the tiny little lunges that a gudgeon or a tiny roach would make, that these fine elastics cushioned it. And you just took care bringing each one, nursing it back to the net or swinging it in. So you're always looking for the ultimate of perfection in presentation. You got your bait right by, say, feeding them on soft milk-fed bread and keeping them soft and keeping them damp throughout. Having a spray gun, a water spray gun at the side of you, always keeping them damp so that the skins were always maximum soft. So if it was a sunny day, you used to cover them with a a damp towel. Everything possible to maximise them. but anglers were lazy, and even my own team, we used to have lots of conflict, although it was a good team. But I was not a dictator, but I was quite um, forceful in my ways, because some of the anglers weren't all that experienced, and they appreciated my greater knowledge, And but it made them refined. And so if you go into team fishing on canals, it's all or nothing. No, oh, just in case there's a big fish, I'm going to do the. It had to be all or nothing really refined tattle squat fishing from beginning to end and try not to fall flat on your face so in teams of 12 which you usually were you were aiming for eight and nine points we knew that you sometimes used to win it but very often you could win it with squats the the section but if you got eight nine ten points out of 12 and everyone did the same you were the winning team uh, and you won the league overall this was exemplified, I think it was 1997, I was fishing for a team called Wizzo Black Rods. It was at Timpley and Sale on the Bridgewater Canal. We all went and we absolutely blitzed it because no big fish fed on the day. And so I think out of the 12 anglers, we had something like nine section winners, two section seconds and one section third. And it just proved how, how effective squat fishing can really be. And it worked best when the water was clear when the water's clear the big fish don't seem to want to feed and the little fish don't want to feed so that's where the refinement comes in it works in really clear transparent water which it very often was the bridgewater canal is quite deep and even though it took barges the barge went through and it didn't stir the bottom up There was probably six feet of water under the water line of the boat and so the boat had very little effect upon the colour of the water and so it stayed clear and uh, these fish were spooked very easily so squat fishing was even more refined on there it had to be really done well it was usually a single squat rarely a double squat in fact these 28 hooks that i've mentioned it would be impossible to fit two squats on so it's a tiny tiny little bait but you were targeting little fish but sometimes it was amazing you used to get bonus perch bream and very often because your presentation was so refined and so good even the big fish would have a go now and again and usually you did get them out these tiny hooks you did get them out
0: and i suppose you was also on the scene when traditional rod and reel outfits started giving way to the pole so what's your recollection of that
1: well it all occurred in the early 80s and at that stage the poles were glass or a combination of glass and carbon there was very little carbon about then. It was just starting to come in. And poles were in their infancy. They, the manufacturers tended to make them a little bit over-engineered, thick in the wall. They didn't have much idea of what was required. So poles was usually a maximum length of 11 metres. So it was quite restrictive. But because canals were not much wider than that, very often 11 metres would find your way to the far side, especially on the narrow canals like the Trent and mersey First of all, they just used a flick tip without any internal elastic systems in the early 80s. Then the internal elastic systems came, and then it could get really refined then by using very fine elastics for these very tiny fish. But the poles really were pretty awful by comparison. Then carbon came in, the poles got longer to 12.5 metres, then 14.5 metres, and then you get to the end of the 80s, early 90s, when 16 meter poles came in were pretty cumbersome and awkward to handle and people avoided fishing 16 meters especially squat fishing it's a long way to go for a a tiny little squat fish if you could avoid it squat fishing usually was best at between 9 and 11 meters because it was a nice distance to fish but um, because it was restricted to canals rod and reels it never came in, it was so refined, so perfect presentation with pole by not having to cast, to cast to 11 meters you need a fairly hefty float with a loaded in order to get there, whereas pole fishing it could be minuscule the float because you actually carried it there and dropped it in. So pole fishing was far better than any rod and reel fishing it's only, uh, even now, if it, I, I only use rod and reel if I have to fish beyond 16 metres, where it's beyond the distance of pole. But even with pole fishing, I'll go fish, say, 16 and metres and then fish five feet of line beyond. So really, I can fish 18 metres out from the bank, even with a pole, by pendulum the bait out, especially with pellets in summer. You can easily pendulum five and six feet beyond the pole, tip where the wary fish are so you can pick off the the wary fish that don't want to come within pole range by loose feeding at 16 17 meters so it's only in extreme cases now that i use rod and reel i've always in a way neglected um, feeder fishing on principle up to uh, a bit of a purist because of the squat fishing i'm very much a purist i like to hook and land my own fish and i know for certain that that feeder fishing Uh, 90% of the fish hook themselves the fish are bolt rig so all they do is is cast the bait out wait for the tip to nod the fish is already on the hook they don't strike don't need to strike they just reel in so even though on matches I I avoid it on principle I've no doubt there are cases where feeder fishing and lead fishing has its place but me it's not really for me I have done it in the past and I've even won Quite a few matches on it, but it's not something I enjoy doing. Certainly not today, now that these bolt rigs have come in. When anglers fish opposite each other on a venue, some of these commercials are fishing directly opposite, which wouldn't happen on a canal. If you allowed feeder fishing, they'd be throwing feeders all over the place. They'd be throwing it into the angler's swim on the other bank. It always works that way. If someone catches fish, the the angler on the opposite bank, he casts across into the other angler's peg. But you can avoid that by restricting it to pole only. And uh, it might be restrictive in some times, but um, we do allow it on the croft matches, but only when it's very, very windy, when pole fishing loses its effectiveness in high winds, when it's very awkward to handle long poles. Though so We use lead fishing then or feeder fishing,
0: but only in those circumstances. Then, in 2005 you turned your back on big sea match angling and walked away. So what happened there?
1: The time I left National Fishing in 2005, it was at the time, it had already started to disband. Teams were already disbanding. I, I ran the Cheshire Winter League in an administrative role until about 2002. And it had reduced over the years from 12 teams to 2002 we were down to nine teams. 2003 came along, there were no teams. There weren't enough. No, another team had dropped out. The angling times wouldn't allow us to run it with eight teams, so the team simply disbanded. I continued nationals for another couple of years, fishing for Newtonly Willows, but again, that just faded away, just lacked interest. So it, in many ways, it was forced upon me. There was just lack of interest and people just walking away from team fishing. They wanted some individual glory. Some anglers haven't got the mindset in many ways to fish teams. They don't understand that you need a totally different mindset compared to fishing an ordinary individual match. And it takes a bit of getting your head around team fishing. It is like a football match. It is a team. You're not playing as an individual. You have to fish as a team with a common cause, with strict strategies and having meetings and practice. Very often in team fishing, what we used to do is 12 of us would go along practice, six would do one thing, would, every other peg would fish squat, and every other peg would fish caster. And then after three hours, we then swapped and did something, we'd have a little meeting and compare notes in a way, finding out how anglers and how the venue reacted to the different baits, trying to work out strategies for the match ahead. It did work, obviously, and also it got anglers to work as a team and you could talk together and work out strategies. But as I say, got to the early 2000s, team fishing was definitely on the slide, and I just went back to what I did 20, 30 years ago when I I fished in, in club matches. And I quite enjoy club match fishing. There's not the pressure on you. In many ways, there's a lot of pressure on you when you're fishing nationals. You wanted to do well for yourself, but mainly for the team, and you can let the team down by having a bad result. Whereas when you go into a club match, it's very much a social event. You do pull out all the stops. You do want to win, but you're not restricted so much with the tactics. You can fish any bait you like without the imposition of a team telling you what to do. I do practice for my club fishing, work out strategies, and very often it pays off because practice, without any doubt, does pay dividends. You get a feel for it, even if it's only knowing what depth and what rig to pull out of the box without having to go through three rigs before you get the right one to fish that particular depth. It gives you an an idea of what the species are, what the bait is that they take. So I try to practice at least once, if not twice, before even the club matches. And there's nothing at stake, really. You only win a few pounds. It's just the pride of, of doing well that you're fishing for. But it's a good social event. You have a good laugh and a joke with the anglers around you, and you get to know each other. I very much enjoy it, to be quite honest. Certainly, it's taken an enormous weight off my shoulders, fishing club events. There's no pressure at all. Whereas, uh, I enjoyed the pressure of team fishing. I really did. Especially when, at the end of the match, at a meeting and you you found that your team had won and you'd got 12 points out of 12, you realised that um, all the hard work was worthwhile and all the practice was worthwhile Wigan and District, the the team that I fished with first of all when I came over from the other side of the Pennines, I found that they were a team very much of individuals. They were all very good individual anglers winning lots of money on canals, but they were very much um, into the mode of winning and trying to convert them into squat fishing and anything like that was a, a very, very difficult task indeed, whereas I great friends with the Liverpool outfit. They were exactly the opposite. Liverpool in district were um, very much team-orientated. They worked very much and they, they were very strict with them. And I admired um, Liverpool. They were a great set of lads. And they wanted me to fish f- for them. Uh, I was head-hunted in, I think, about something like the year 2000, when the team that I was fishing with, Black Rods, they disbanded and... Uh, it was a bit too far to travel to Liverpool. Instead, uh, Newtley Willows asked me to fish for them, and um, I obliged, and I fished with them for about five or six years in nationals. A great set of lads, and they were very much team-orientated, Newtley Willows, but um, some of the anglers weren't up to the very, very high standard. Some were, but some weren't. Whereas if i had gone with Liverpool, they would have been all of a very high standard. They were... Extremely good and very competent and very dedicated anglers, Liverpool and District
0: anglers. One final point of interest you raised when we were chatting earlier was a qualification back in 1979 as a National Anglers Council Certified Advanced Course Instructor and how he was asked to use it at an international level in, of all places, Wales.
1: Again, my qualification, as you say, it was NFA who um, organised the qualification in line with the National Anglers Council and they actually certified it, I went uh, on a course and I became an, an advanced angling instructor. My first role as an instructor, the NFA organised me to go to, uh, it was really, it was the educational and recreational holidays. It was for young anglers in North Wales, in Denbigh, for two weeks. An international cast of young anglers, There were two Japanese boys of about 15 years old and two German boys of about 16 and all the rest were local English or Scottish or Welsh junior anglers and it lasted for a fortnight and they, it was great especially the fact that they would come from the other side of the world to get tuition in angling course angling the Japanese boys were particularly um, attentive but all of them were we, and I had my own minibus I'd travelled round North Wales unfortunately it's not the hot spot of angling that um, the rest of the country can have. And so Denby is near Snowdonia. Within the easy reach of Denby, is, it weren't such great fisheries. But we did go and we did catch fish. But it would have been better if there would have been better fisheries. But all the local associations granted us permission to fish on their waters for free, which was really good. I contacted them and uh, they were very, very forthcoming and, and uh, they never even charged us anything for the lads to fish then i went on teaching in a, a local school the the nfa brought out um, bronze silver and gold awards and i was the first one in the northwest to actually go and um, and teach started off at the bronze so i got loads of publicity on radio and uh, in lo- all the local papers and i taught at a, a local uh, secondary school for a full year of the bronze award and they gave me one afternoon per week, I got time off work to do it. There was, I think, nine young boys, about 14, 15, all gained the bronze award. And, uh, it was really gratifying to see them, um, improve so much, uh, in such a short time in, in the year that I took them. And some of them became good friends and still fishing now. A lot of it was classroom based, health and safety. I didn't want it to be just an uptie in, float making. You know, it's very much a practical thing, getting on the banks. So again, we got on the banks in the warmer months of the year, having gone through the hard winter months, mainly in the classroom doing tuition. But then it got into April, May and June. We spent most of that time going to, to local fisheries and uh, actually building up lots of fishing knowledge and ability. I just ran it for that one year. I never got um, permission to run it for a further year because I was taken away from my job. My employer wouldn't grant me another half day per week for a full year to go and teach young anglers, but uh, they were both good experiences, both the the international crew at Denbigh, North Wales, and this year-long teaching course, the the bronze award, the NFA bronze award. It was a a great experience for me, and the response that you get. The one in Denbigh, of course, was, was totally practical biggest problem was when you come from Japan and, and Germany, that you don't bring much tattle so all the local associations were really good in, in lending tattle and the local tattle shops did everything possible and went out of their way to help the anglers on this course really.
0: Is the course still operating now under the Angling Trust I wonder? I
1: really don't know, I'm not even sure if the National Anglers Council still exists I know that wasn't my qualification, that uh, that they granted my, my qualification but people from all over the country went on the course. Depending on how well you did, you either got a basic so that you could teach basic angling or advanced angling and I, was, um, I must have done reasonably well because they granted me the advanced certificate so I could teach all ages and at all levels of course angling and it was that the reason why I did the teaching in the school. But there was just those two episodes of teaching that I did in angling, but um, very enjoyable.
0: Just a pity it isn't still on the agenda as a means not only of getting more youngsters away from game stations, but also into fishing across its entire spectrum. Maybe then it wouldn't be contracting in the way it currently is, as people find other things to do. My thanks then to John Inman for giving us this brief history of match angling and for providing details on an often overlooked bait these days, the squat.